You are listening to Myth Behaving, a podcast with a little bit of attitude on the literary world. Won't you come Myth Behave with us? Hello and welcome to Myth Behaving. This is episode number 31 of the Myth Behaving podcast and we're recording on May 4th, 2014. I'm Mira Wilson and I'm joined by my co-host and producer Carla Clifton. Carla, how are you on this very fine Star Wars day? May the 4th be with you. I love it. I love it. I, I love know. Star We've been Wars Day. To say that all year, right? I know. <laughs> I know. I'm doing great. Mayor, how about you? I'm doing great. I'm doing really good. I have a new puppy, so I'm in I'm in puppy heaven right now. Oh, that's awesome. Awesome. Well, hello, listeners. Each of our Myth Behaving show features a special guest from the literary world. It could be a writer, a publisher, an agent, an editor, or just anyone else connected with the world of publishing. Plus, we have several special segments relating to reading or writing. in the library of a misbehavior. That means it's time for something from the library of a misbehavior. Today, I'm recommending Muse Unexpected, an urban fantasy by V.C. Berlides. This is an urban fantasy with a twist. Instead of vampires, witches, or werewolves, this is a coming-of-age book, and it goes back to Greek mythology for its inspiration. Anybody who has... Um, followed me at all knows I absolutely adore Greek mythology. So this this has just been a fabulous book to read. Um, this particular one is focused on the muses. And our heroine is Sophie, who's just a normal teen until she comes into her powers as a muse. And she's got a loving and supportive mom. She's got a really power-hungry grandmother. And then she's got some really elusive supporting characters who may or may not be on her side. And she's got some some pretty exciting adventures that she is faced with. So, well, pick it up. Yes. And that must mean our special guest today is V.C. Berlitis. Welcome to the show, V. And thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I, I, I just adore Mare, and I, I'm just so thrilled to be here. The feeling is mutual. Thank you so very much. We are just thrilled to have you chat with us today. I've had the pleasure of getting to know V uh, in one of my author groups, and it's very exciting to have him on the show today. So we're, we're looking forward to a really good time today, guys. Of Truth and Mythery. Of Truth and Mythery is a segment where we take a commonly held publishing or writing belief and examine whether it's true or just another myth. V, please feel free to answer this. The urban fantasy paranormal genres are primarily written by and for women. Is that of truth or is that a myth? Well, actually, I think it's, it's, it's both, to be honest with you. I mean, I think that, I think that there are a lot of men that tend to gravitate more towards the gritty urban type of, of fantasy book, uh, as far as writing it. Um, although lately I've actually been seeing several uh, female authors stepping up and actually, uh, you know, um, uh, taking a dive at, at that particular genre. Um, but I think that I, I, I don't know as to whether or not I would consider it to be written for women, although 
you know, once again, there there is a trend where people are are attracted more to uh, the whole concept of of this of this you know gritty um, you know urban fantasy uh, type of of, of storyline. So it's that's a really hard question to answer because I think it's a little bit of both. I don't I don't think I don't think with urban fantasy you can necessarily say either way. Um, you know whether or not it's it's written for women or it's written by women simply because it's you know I mean it it really I think it really depends on the story and who the main character is. Very good answer. Oh, I hope so. I try, I was walking that really thin line there, but <laughs> well, yeah, and it's true because there there are so many different ones, but it does seem, especially especially more into the paranormal, we we tend to see, I think, a lot more women um, writers and readers. But in the urban fantasy portion, I think it's pretty pretty split, maybe. Yeah, I would probably say that. Yeah, it is. It is kind of split. But I once again, I think it depends on who the main character is, whether it's a hero or, you know, or it's a heroine, a heroine, or or what have you. Simply because, um, you know, I think that's what tends to gravitate um, um, the particular reader too. Like for example, my book, Muse Unexpected. You know, I mean, the main character is Sophie, um, and she, you know, as you had mentioned, she is this average, you know, sixteen-year-old. Um, and it was written, uh, the, the majority of the book is actually written from a female perspective, um, and which a lot of people have told me that's kind of interesting, considering that obviously I'm male, but um, th- for some reason that voice just seemed to be a little bit more comfortable for me, at least for this particular storyline. Yeah, and it's a fascinating story. Good job on it. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're quite welcome. You know, this is a really a unique take for urban fantasy using the muses because, you know, we have so many vampire books and werewolf books and shapeshifters and witches and whatnot. And and this is really different going back to the Greek mythologies. Uh, where did you get the idea to write this story? Um, it, it was really interesting. Um, you know, several years ago, because it took me about, oh, I'd say four years to actually complete, complete the novel, uh, at least the very first draft of the novel. Um, and initially, I, I hadn't, I wasn't sold 100% on writing about the Greek gods, simply because at the time, everybody was writing about the Greek gods. And, you know, like obviously there's Percy Jackson and, and there's several other um, novels that are out there that, that focus specifically on, on Greek mythology. Um, but what ended up happening was, was I was, I was writing my first, my, my first attempt at a novel, which was just a few pages. And, um, it was a story of a girl and she wakes up in the middle of the night having a premonition that her father is going to die. And, um, it's a, and it was, and it was, there was a big storm that was happening outside. And I remember looking at it thinking, great, I just wrote another version of it was a dark and stormy night and completely deleted it saying that, that it was just utter crap. But um, I had come across a book that my father had given me, and it was something that he had read. It was a very worn paperback by the time I got a hold of it, and it was all about the Greek gods. And he used to read these stories to me as a child for, like, demented bedtime stories. So I, as a child, already had an overactive imagination, and... Um, literally, I had many sleepless nights due to the story of Pandora or the story of Hades and Persephone. Um, so you can imagine how angry my mother was 
you know, to, to have this child that would not go to sleep because he was afraid of what was in the closet or what was going to pop out of my, out of my toy chest. Um, and I remember finding this book and thinking, you know, well, why not? Why not the Greek gods? You know, I, I, because I was, I had planned to bring my own kind of unusual quirky voice to it. These, you know, I figured out that they weren't going to be lofty gods. They were going to be, you know, incredibly flawed. And one of the things that I thought was, you know, okay, so if I'm going to write about the gods, who is going to be the main focus of this, of this story? And I thought, well, why not take some of the most, you know, mundane goddesses that there are, which were the muses. I mean, literally, all they did was spent their entire time whispering in the ears of artists to inspire them. Or if you follow the 1980 version of Xanadu, inspire somebody to open a roller skating disco. So, you know, <laughs> so I just thought, okay, I'm going to take them. And then I thought, well, if I'm telling my story, why don't I just simply change things up and change the muses into being guardians of the human race and change up the different connections between the different, um, the different gods and goddesses that don't exist in regular mythology. And that's where the story kind of blossomed because then I, then I was just like, well, I can write whatever the heck I want. So there you go. Yeah. And, and I like that. And obviously I, I didn't mean that there are no Greek God books out there. Um, but I, I still think yours is is different. I think it's got its own unique take on it, and I really I really liked that. Well, what's interesting about the book, um, or at least I feel is interesting, is yeah, you have this whole supernatural aspect to it, which obviously whisks the story away. Um, but there's actually several themes that are kind of woven into the book itself, um, and one of the biggest ones is the theme of family and you know being being gay you know i'm i'm gay and and realizing that in this life sometimes you have to make up your own families simply because maybe you're not receiving the acceptance that you that you would like or for whatever reason and what i wanted to do is i wanted to take this young girl sophie and place her in this absolutely ridiculous situation and see how she would develop her sense of family. Because in the beginning of the book, the family is fractured. You know, the mother and daughter aren't getting along. The grandmother and the, and the mother haven't spoken to each other for 20 years. So there's this, this just absolute huge amount of animosity that's happening between the three women that are the main focus of the book. And as the story goes along, Sophie does find a way to work towards mending fences with her mother. And even uh, her mother, Callie, is finding ways to see the good in her mother, which, would, which is Georgia. And they start to have actually have a better relationship because of it. Because really, they're, because of this ridiculous situation, they are, they're forced to, to, you know, to, to mend those, those bonds that have been destroyed. Um, and the other thing is, the other big theme about this is, is you have three women, three very strong women that all are faced with their own take on, on the supernatural lifestyle. So you have Georgia, who basically ran towards her supernatural gift. She wanted it. She was poor. You know, she had a wretched existence. And she basically said, I'm going to get what's mine. And that in itself kind of shapes the woman that she is today. 
which is very power hungry, which is she makes no apologies uh, about what she does simply because she feels, she, you know, what she's doing is in the best interest of everyone. And, you know, a lot of people tend to, to hate Georgia, and I actually like her out of most of the characters that are in the book simply because she's this very strong woman. And, you know, why is it that women, when they're so strong and so opinionated and so I'm going to get what I want out of the world, they're labeled, excuse the expression, a bitch. But a man who does that, they are considered virile and, and commanding and, and take charge, you know, type, and they're a leader. And I basically wanted to create this character for Georgia or this, you know, to basically create Georgia so that she has all the aspects of, of being a man, except she's a woman. Um, you know, and then you have Callie, who is the mother of, of Sophie and the daughter of Georgia, and she runs away from the supernatural life. She doesn't want it. She never wanted it. All she wanted was a regular life of, you know, macaroni art on the on the refrigerator and PTA meetings and a husband that loved her and a and a and a daughter or a son, a child to love and to love for her to love and, and also for that child to love her back. And then you have Sophie, who had no idea, none of this existed, and she's basically forced into it. So you have all of these women that are actually embattled in this supernatural um, world, and they struggle with it. You know, even Georgia struggles with it because she's always trying to hold on to power. Um, and it's how they deal with this situation and how they deal with each other um, that is a huge theme that goes throughout the book. Wow. So, sorry, I, I, a bit long-winded. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, that is just unbelievable. I mean, I like where you went with that. Thank you. It's It's got a lot of depth to it, and that's obvious reading through the book. It, it's, it's very, it's very, got a lot of complex themes to it, and, and you like that. And this, I should mention that this is actually a young adult book. Yeah, it's a. It, what's interesting is it's a young adult book, but it actually has a lot of adult humor in it. Um, I kind of wanted to go for that whole, you know, like the old Looney Tunes that we used to watch as kids. And there's actually a lot of adult humor that that happens in in those cartoons. And I wanted it to. I wanted to create that same essence where if an adult picks it up, they'll enjoy it. But you know, I, I, obviously, a young adult. And one of the beta readers for this uh, for this novel. Um, was actually 10 and she loved it. She goes, Oh, this is the best book I've ever read in my life. And I go, Oh, sweetie, but how many books have you read? <laughs> Thank you. But seriously, how many books have you read? <laughs> it's time for Myth Print Tips and Tricks of the Industry. All right, it's time for another one of our special segments. Myth print includes a basic tip concerning writing, marketing, or anything else to do with the industry. V, do you have any tips about writing in general that you could share with our listeners? You know, I I think one of the biggest tips that 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 kind of helped me that a friend, um, a fellow writer, actually offered to me, and she said, you know, a lot of people will tell you how you're supposed to write but write the way that it feels comfortable for you. So, for example, writing Muse Unexpected, um, 
I didn't have an outline, and halfway through the book, I'm like, oh, maybe I should have an outline. So I wrote an outline and then proceeded to ignore it completely because I wanted the book to naturally flow wherever it was going to go. Um, because at that point, it kind of took on a life of its own, and I was even kind of surprised at the way that the ending ended up, you know, happening, simply because it, once again, it, I, it, but for me, the story just simply happens the way that it's supposed to happen, and, you know, I, I, but that's probably the best advice that I've ever gotten as far as that. That and, you know, take reviews with a, with a grain of salt. <laughs> <laughs> yes, excellent advice. You know, writing is a process of so many things. What do you love most about what you do, V? Um, that's really a good question. What do I like about it? I like it when it's done. <laughs> I, I, you know, I will say this. Um, I like I, one of the best things I love about when now that this this novel is done and I'm starting to out I I, I should say this I am going to outline book two since now I've got people that are are really vested in in the world that I've created but um, I think one of the best things that I love is actually seeing someone you know I I had a book club with the women of uh, I call them the Dublin Housewives but here in Dublin Ohio they they have a book club and they invited me to talk. And I just loved how people just absolutely, I mean, they, they gushed. And I almost kind of felt a little bit uncomfortable um, about it because, you know, I'm just like, well, technically, if you look at such and such a page, I didn't think I really took it in the right direction. But, you know, but they just absolutely loved it. And that is just so incredibly rewarding to be able to see someone look at the wor at the people that you've created and the world that you've created and just absolutely, you know, just are able to get lost in it. You know, one of the things that I've always loved about reading is the fact that I don't care what's going on in your life. You know, uh, you know, you could be having an absolutely crappy day or you could be going through, like with my mom, my mother, God rest her soul, you know, she went through a very long illness. And um, there was a time when the only way that I could escape the reality of having a mother that was terminally ill was through books and it was this release to be able just to you know lay down on the couch or or climb a tree and have a book with you and just to be able to read page after page of something that you that I could lose myself in um, so I mean so you, I mean it, it just like I said it just it's just such a blessing to have someone that that says that you know that I couldn't put it down um, one person I remember came and they said, I, I, I read it in one sitting and I was just like, seriously? I mean, because, <laughs> and they're like, yeah, I just could not, I had to have, I had to get to the end. So I think that's, that's very rewarding. Wow. I don't even know how to, to follow up with that one because that is such a great thing to say, but is there anything about the process that you don't like? Um, Honestly, I don't like the submission process. You know, after you, I, the editing process doesn't bother me because I'm, I, I'm humble. I, I believe that I'm humble enough to realize that sometimes I write crap, complete and utter crap. And somebody needs to point it out to me because, you know, I mean, if it's crap, it's going to stink. 
So, so, you know, that doesn't bother me at all. You know, when I went through the editing process of, of Muse Unexpected, I had one editor that, that pretty much said, yeah, I want you to put your characters in more peril. And I was like, peril? And they, yeah, more danger. I think that you, you have such a great lead up to the end of the book and then it just kind of fizzles. She goes, no, I, I, I want you to start killing people. Oh. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so that didn't bother me. Uh, but the submission process is just, it's, it's hell on earth. You know, and it's not even so much, you know, getting the rejections because you know you're going to get it. But I think what kind of what kind of bothers me about it is everybody has their own submission guidelines. And if I have to write another friggin synopsis for the same book that is like one person wants one page synopsis, another person wants a five page synopsis, another person wants a 10 page synopsis. I mean, and you're just like going, are you kidding me? It's like rewriting the book all over again, 15 times over. So I think that's probably the most frustrating aspect of of the is the submission process and the other thing is is that you know we're in this we're in this interesting phase within the publishing industry of you have a lot of boutique publishers that are out there and you have you know obviously the big houses and you know it it it's it, you have to take everything with a grain of salt when they're when they're sending back feedback or they're sending back you know, some absolutely horrendous rejection letters, and I've, I have quite a few that I have framed in my office, simply because it just makes me smile to, to, to look at them and just say, you know, you know, screw you. But, um, but you know, I think, I think it's, it's, it's just the, the, the struggle that you have to go through in order to, in order to get noticed in this new industry. Um, and, you know, some of the best rejections I got, though, and, and this is something that everyone should kind of take to heart, some of the best rejections that I got were ones where they actually took the time to say, what you got here is good, but it's not ready. And then they went on to offer some really wonderful advice as far as, you know, this is great, this is not so great, you're, you're, you know, this is fantastic. And... You know, I mean, even though that was not the publisher that I ended up going with, um, simply because, um, you know, it just didn't work out. But, you know, still, that really kind of spurred me on to not give up, you know, to, to just keep on moving forward. Because I knew eventually either I'm going to find a publisher, I'm going to find an agent, or I'm going to publish it on my own. Because that's another aspect that a lot of people tend to shy away from. And nowadays, I mean, there are... On the New York Times bestseller list, there are numerous self-published books. And the biggest thing to, that people should take away from that is that they should believe in what it is that they've created. And no matter what, whether you get a small press or a big house or you publish it yourself, um, just the fact that it's, you know, just that, that you've accomplished this and you have something in print, um, you know, is, is, is such an accomplishment. Great advice. Authors work in so many different ways. Are you a planner, outlining everything and making extensive notes? Or are you a pantser, flying by the seat of your pants and letting your book go wherever it will? Uh, definitely a pantser. I'm definitely a pantser. And I, and I think, as Joel, uh, my partner, says all the time, I'm so incredibly flighty 
when it comes to how I attack things like, you know, like writing and, and it's just kind of like just, I'm just going to start typing and I'll see where it takes me. Um, you know, and I think what's really great about that is that it allows me to have the creative freedom to write sections of work that may not necessarily be good for the, the particular book that I'm working on, but it's still, you know, I, for example, because I, I don't think I'm explaining myself uh, correctly um, regarding this, but for example, there was a section of Muse Unexpected the, that it killed me to cut, but the editor said, this really does not does nothing to move the story along. And it was actually the backstory to the best friend of Sophie, Angela, who is half Gorgon, half witch. She said, but it's so beautifully written, cut it and save it for the next book or save it for a future book or save it for a book that's just about Angela. And that kind of helped the blow as far as, okay, well, I'll just save that. But, um, it, it, because I'm a pantser, it allows me to create these little sections. And who knows? I may go back and just simply write a book that's going to be dedicated, you know, completely, you know, dedicated to, you know, to the character of Angela and her adventure. Or it could be that maybe in the next book, which I'm actually toying with, that Angela plays a larger role in the, in the whole scheme of things. And we actually get the opportunity to look in and see what actually created this 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 wonderful wonderful uh, young woman um, who befriends Sophie and um, not meaning to give anything away but ends up sacrificing a lot in order to um, make Sophie you know make Sophie survive the, the the first big adventure and catastrophe that she that she runs into. But that's what's fun about it being a pantser is your character's surprising you right. I mean, that's oh. how I feel. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And yeah, I, I, there, there were several characters that actually surprised me as I was writing it. And there's one scene in particular that I just find, um, that I think, that I thought was lovely. And it's a scene between Georgia and the housekeeper, Winnie, who actually is like the comic relief uh, um, in the book and in the most serious of situations. And it's a very intimate scene where they're just at the kitchen. It's very simple. They're at the kitchen sink and they're peeling potatoes. And it kind of shows that there's this relationship between these two women that is, is very intimate and they're very, I mean, they're very close to each other. And it actually shows a vulnerability with Georgia. Um, that she doesn't let a lot of people see. And for some reason, Winnie, she, she can let her guard down and she can actually express her, her private thoughts. Um, you know, I, I just, I just, and that, and once again, that was something that I really had no plan to, to write. And for some reason, I just felt that, you know, I want to be able to show another facet or dimension to Georgia where she's just not this, rip roaring, you know, uh, you know, power hungry bitch. No, she's, there, there's something more to her. Well, you've touched on it a little bit, but but you want to share a little bit more about what your next project is? Well, actually, I have I have two projects. I I I, I have uh, the book two for Muse Unexpected, which will continue the story of Sophie, and um and by the end of the book, everything has just completely been destroyed. You know, um, uh, once again, not meaning to give anything away, because I, I love readers to be able to discover the 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 the, it, the very much surprise ending that happens in in book one. Um, 
but there's another book that I'm that I'm actually very excited about that I'm going to write about. And you know, my background is in marketing and communications, and I actually work for SBC Advertising, which is one of the larger um, or one of the biggest Midwest advertising agencies located here in Columbus, Ohio. So I kind of am going to write this book about a. a a man who just so happens to be gay and he's in the advertising agency and basically what happens is is he's originally from Savannah and he goes off to New York to enjoy the New York lifestyle and he has too much of it and he ends up crashing and burning and having to return to Savannah um, a, a, a city that he actually ended up kind of leaving with a cloud of scandal over him. So it's kind of like him coming into terms with his past and him finding true love. And um, I, like I said, I, I, and, I, and I have been such a wonderful uh, fan and, and lover of Savannah that I just absolutely can't wait to write this fantastic book about that <laughs> wonderful city of the South, you know, um, so so I, that's going to be that's going to be a lot of fun to do. But Muse Unexpected, the second book, is is definitely one that I have um, several people clamoring uh, for me to continue the story because they want to hear what happens next. And um, Sophie actually will be removed from uh, her uh, grandmother's house by force simply because of what happens in the in the last part of the book. And she actually will uh, be forced to come back to the United States, and she'll end up in New York City. Um, so you know, New York City is such a wonderful, wonderful town to be that has its own personality, and um, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, you know, taking Sophie through um, you know this new uh, adventure, and unfortunately for Sophie, there's going to be a lot of revelations that are not going to make her a happy camper. But you know, but that's what this story is all about. It's all about revelations and and coming of age and and having to having to fight for for what is right and what is true. So sounds wonderful. Thank you. Well, we've seen a lot of changes in the publishing industry just in the last couple of years. Do you feel the changes have impacted your own work? And if so, in what ways? And how do you feel about those changes? Well, I think that the the changes are wonderful, simply because there was a time and place where literally you only had the big houses in order to go to the big publishing houses to to get an opportunity to get published and you know and they were looking for something very specific or they would not necessarily take the time for a novel that may be a little bit you know a little bit rough more rougher rougher than than they would prefer um that would never see the light of day um but now I mean, you know, it's it's anybody's game. You know, you can self-publish if you want, and you can put your work out there and see what happens, or you can, if you land a big house, fantastic, congratulations, or you can go with a boutique um, publishing house, um, which, you know, which, you know, all of, the, all of these choices have their pros and cons. Um, you know, either way, um, I think one thing that that authors need to realize is, is that it's you that are going to be doing the marketing for your books, and it is you that's going to be, you know, making arrangements. And, you know, unless it's a fantastic hit right off the bat, which you know nine out of ten times that's not the case. You're the one that's going to be doing the pushing all the while, having to write the next book or you know or write the, write a new series or what have you. So it can be a full time job on top of a full time job that you may have, but 
Um, but no, I think it's I think it's wonderful because it allows people to realize their dream of being a published author. And you know, when you look at today's industry and you see things like the big houses picking up Fifty Shades of Grey and and lifting it up like it's like it's literary gold, which I I cannot say that I I know the the overall value of this book simply because I haven't read it, but just from what people have told me, um, it's probably some of the worst writing that that's ever come across, but because it's so salacious, it's a hit. So, you know, I mean, so, so there are, like I said, there, there, there are pros and cons to the whole environment. And, um, but I think once again, I think that it's, it's absolutely wonderful because people should be able to have a voice, should be able to, you know, find, you know, find their audience. I mean, we're, we're so blessed to have this, the, to have a global, um, industry. And, you know, there's an audience out there for your book. You just simply have to find it. The myth number is. And now it's time for myth number, our word for the day. And today's word is muse. V, how much research did you do on Greek mythology in general and specifically on muses? You know, it was, I took a balanced uh, approach on it. I did, I definitely did research on it. I, I went and, and actually spoke to um, several professors um, at the college that I graduated from, which was a Catholic university, um, and also at Ohio State, just to kind of talk about, you know, their, their, you know, their opinions of the gods and things like that. Um, I did do, um, some reading on it, but, but once again, I think I really wanted it to make it my own, and I did not want it to be heavily, um, um, impacted by, what history has established as far as what these gods and goddesses and muses are all about. Um, and I think, as you can see um, in the book, I definitely have taken liberties that maybe or maybe not I shouldn't have taken, but it was just too much fun not to. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I did some research, but I, I didn't feel that because I was going to take um, do my own slant on them, that it was necessary for me to be an absolute expert to be able to recite all of the Greek gods and demigods that were in existence, you know, um, you know, that, that are, that are written down. So. Great answer. If you could have a dinner party with any seven people living dead or fictional, who would you include? Ooh. That's really a good question. Carla's favorite question. It is. I love, I love, okay, all right. Um, I think uh, one of the people that I would love to have is Ernest Hemingway, simply because I knew he had a, he knew how to have a good time. I would probably also, I would love, love, love to have Bill Clinton at my dinner table, simply because he, just for some reason, he's just the most fascinating man. Um, I'm trying to think of who else would I want. Five more. Oh my goodness. Um, gosh, the pressure, the pressure. Mayor, why are you doing this to me? <laughs> I think I think that I would absolutely love to have um uh, okay. And and forgive me for saying this, and I know you're going to roll your eyes, but I would love to have had Jacqueline Suzanne at my table. God bless her soul. I mean 
Valley of the Dolls is one of those trashy novels that I always go back to on a rainy day with a cup of hot cocoa, and I'll just pick it up and start reading it over again. And it is god-awful, but it is just such, it's just such a train wreck of a novel that I just can't resist. So definitely Jacqueline, Suzanne. Um, let's see. I would probably, I would love to have um, JFK there. Um, along with um, along with um, his um, his wife Jackie O, because I just thought that she was always just such a style icon. And um, while I'm at it, I would love to have Audrey Hepburn there at the dinner party. Also, how many am I up to now? I forget. Six. Six. Um, I think. Am I up to six? Okay. So let's see. I would, I would really, really love to have, and I know this, I'm sorry, this is going to sound so gay. Please forgive me. I would love to have Betty Davis sitting at the table because she just seems like a pisser. And you just, you know, you got to have, you got to have a pisser in the party. Um, um, simply because you just, because you know, you don't know what they're going to come out with. And, um, and that's just always a great, great, um, to, to mix things up a bit. And then I would probably, in all honesty, if I were going to have someone at the dinner table, it would have to be Mare. I would love to have Mare at my dinner party. Wow. Oh, you're just going for points, V. <laughs> all right, so if I'm not going for points, then, um, no, just kidding. <laughs> Sounds like a fascinating dinner party. Uh, no. Hey, I'm, I'm glad he included me. I, I'd love to go. <laughs> and let me tell you, Mayor, my dinner parties are legendary. Oh, I bet they are. <laughs> I have no doubt about that. Okay, what question do you never get asked in interviews that you wish someone would ask you? And then what would your answer be? That's really, really a good question. Um, I think the, que <laughs> the question that, okay, all right. So the question that, that I would love to have somebody have asked and um uh, that, that nobody does is, <laughs> all right, brace yourself, Mayor. Um, <laughs> Carla okay. better brace herself too. Car brace, brace yourself, Carla. Um, okay, Th this is, this is what I would want them to ask me. You truly are more handsome in person than, than, than on the web. How do you do it? <laughs> <laughs> But amazingly enough, I don't get that answer, uh, that question no. at all. I don't know why. Why? Well, darn, I don't know. <laughs> I think they should ask you that right away. Exactly. As a matter of fact, Carly, you feel free to ask uh, me that question. Yes, well. absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm going to ca carry it on, a, on an opposite end. If uh, everyone has their own uh, personal myths, things about that people, a lot of people think about us that may or may not be true, their own personal myth behavior. What myth behavior do people believe about you that is absolutely not true? Okay. I think that one of the things that, um, that people automatically get from me, and I'm not sure why, is they think that I am just a complete bitch. And, 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 I, and excuse me for saying that because I don't want to ruin your PG-13 rating, but um, I, for some reason, I just, you know, I, I, maybe it's because I tend to listen a lot when I'm, you know, meeting people for the first time in order to kind of get their rhythm or get what they're about or 
Um, and sorry, all of the wonder dog decided to bark, but um, I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure why people think that because I literally am the most, you know, unintimidating person, or at least I believe. And I literally would be devastated if I ever hurt somebody's feelings, or if I, um, you know, or if I did something that that just left people with a bad taste in their mouth for me because. I, I just I, I I really do care about about people and it really would it really would upset me if that was the case and I don't think that that's necessarily a bitchy nature at all um, so I think that's probably one of the biggest myths about me maybe it's um, someone once told me that I have a resting bitchy face so that could be it too where I just look very serious so what myth behavior do people believe you about you though that really is true PG thirteen one. But I'm a bit. No, <laughs> I've never had to clarify that with anybody else before, but I'm clarifying. PG thirteen. So, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I think yeah, you're, you're going to be banned. The the FCC is going to come after you. Um, I I think that um, one th one thing that one person that had said to me was that um, that. They felt that my sense of humor it was somewhat of a defense mechanism, which it, which it, to be perfectly honest, it's taken me a long time to, to, to realize this, but it, it's true. Yes, it is. When my mother was dealing with her illness, um, she actually had, um, she had an undiagnosed um, um, uh, depression issue, and then that led to her eating disorder, which ended, which ended, which ended up causing her kidney disease. But um, I used to make her laugh, you know, because I figured out that she always used to say, you either laugh or you cry, so why not laugh? And whenever I would see that she was upset or that she was, you know, that, that she was just kind of having a hard time dealing with the dialysis or the kidney transplant, I just would just have her practically peeing herself laughing. Um, and today, I see myself doing that a lot where it's kind of like, you know, if, if I feel uncomfortable about a situation, I'll crack a joke. Um, or if I feel that somebody is being very, un is, is uncomfortable, um, I'll make them laugh simply because I, I don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable, particularly about me or about, or about a situation. Um, so that, that is perfectly true that yes, it is a defense mechanism. I love that. I think that's one of the best myth behaviors we've had. I love it, too, because I would much rather laugh. Even if, you know, it is a defense mechanism, I, I would appreciate someone that would try to make me laugh. That's Okay, so let, me, so let me say this story. You'll love this. Okay, so my grandmother had passed away, um, um, and I forget how many years ago it was, but we went to the funeral, and I went up to the casket, and, and just so that you know, my father's side of the family is Greek and my mother's side of the family is Italian. So no matter which grandparent I went to, I got fat. So this was my Italian grandmother. Her name was Rose Drago. So she was laid out in the casket and I go up there and I'm looking down and, and my aunt, I was up there for about a minute or so. And my aunt comes over and she says, she goes, are, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I am. And she goes, she goes, okay. And I go, and just as she's about to turn, I, I, I say to her, she looks good. They did a good job on her. And she's just like, she kind of turns and looks down and she says, yes, 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 they did. 
And then I just kind of say, you know, I think she's really happy right now. And she said, why? Why do you think that? She said that she's up in heaven. I go, no, she's in her favorite position, horizontal. And my aunt, <laughs> my aunt literally had to cover her mouth because she was shaking with laughter so much. And she just, oh, my God. She goes, oh, you're awful. And I'm like, whoa. I go, all she needs is a bowl of Cheerios and, a, and um, you know, a Virginia Slims. And she's set. Oh, that is hilarious. <laughs> but But once again, it was my defense mechanism of, it's very sad and, you know, and we shouldn't be sad. We should be happy, you know, and, right. and, you know, and we're celebrating her life. So why not do it with laughter? Exactly. Well, V, I can't believe this. That's the end of our show. Thank you so much for being our guest. We appreciate your information and your sharing with us. Oh, thank you so much. It was, it was completely my pleasure. Thank you. Yes, I do appreciate you taking your time to be with us today. I think you've given us a fascinating look at what you do. I'm looking forward to reading more, more books by you. And remember, everyone, you can go to MythBehaving.com for more information about V. Berlitis and links to his books. You can also read his bio and find links to his social media. Don't forget, you can download this episode on iTunes or listen to it right on the MythBehaving.com website. Please take a moment to leave us a positive feedback on iTunes. And you can subscribe to us on iTunes. Thanks again for tuning in to MythBehaving. We'll see you again next time. I'm Carla. And I'm Mare. And we are MythBehaving, where reality meets fantasy. See you soon. <laughs>